3: Thursday morning, the 3rd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. There are 28 countries in the European Union. On the 31st of October, the United Kingdom is set to leave. The 27 other countries in Europe, including Ireland, have insisted that this cannot result in the return of a hard border on the island of Ireland. So they want the UK to sign up to an insurance policy that will make sure that this does not happen. The insurance policy is called the backstop. The UK says the backstop is unacceptable and three years on from when negotiations began an agreement has still to be found. If an agreement is not found, in 28 days the UK will leave Europe without a deal. The result will be a hard border and quite literally the end of the world as we know it. Yesterday the British Prime Minister put forward a proposed alternative to the backstop the so-called two borders for four-year solution. One border in the Irish Sea and a second uh, on the island of Ireland. A fair and reasonable compromise, Boris Johnson said, for Ireland and for Northern Ireland. But make no mistake, Johnson is not serious. He is taking Ireland and the EU for fools with one objective in mind, and that is to win the next general election for the Tories. Let's talk about this with Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Matt. I think anybody who watched Mr Johnson's speech yesterday will agree he is clearly electioneering. He was suggesting, for example, yesterday that capitalism and Margaret Thatcher were the best things that have ever happened to the UK, at least before the arrival of Boris Johnson.
4: Yes, Michael, and I have to say your own introduction captures exactly the situation that we're finding ourselves in and also portrays the reality that the British government are um, playing what I would consider to be a very reckless game that will impact on all of our lives. Um, I think one of the things that the British position this week has done is vindicate the position of those of us who argued and of the European negotiators who insisted that the issues pertaining to Ireland become one of the three um, issues that needed to be resolved before substantive talks on the future relationship between um, Britain and the EU um, happened. And throughout all this process, if you recall, British the British government kept saying, trust us, we'll deal with the Irish border in terms of the substantive negotiations and you can trust us because we don't want to put in place any further um, border checks or any anything that would harden the border as we know it. And yet, when push came to shove and at this really late stage in the game, the British government have proposed um, the exact ludicrous proposition that all right-thinking people have been trying to, uh, try, trying to avoid throughout this um, um, period. So now, where's the game? It's incumbent on the EU and the Irish government to make it absolutely clear that the British proposals are out of the question um, and that we stand firm in the in the knowledge that what the British government are trying to do. And
3: I think that is exactly what's going to happen Uh, uh, other things might happen, that might not happen for that matter Uh, but uh, Westminster might uh, reject what Mr Johnson has to say because there are proposals from the British government, he has to get the approval of of the House of Commons Uh, and of course then it has to be agreed by Europe What do you think will happen today? Boris Johnson I think is uh, to address Parliament at around half eleven and there's to be a formal response from Europe. Later in the day,
4: yeah. So I think we get a, a sense from the House of Commons, but in many respects, it's almost irrelevant what the House of Commons um, decides um, mm. in relation to this um, position because it is so unacceptable to everybody else, um, and that goes to the crux of this of this issue. It has shown um, that, or we know rather that we have bottom lines with regard to border checks. We have to hope and assume that the Irish government will adhere to those bottom lines. We also know that um, the European Union has been, up until this point, absolutely committed to those positions as well. So the fact that the British government is putting forward papers that fly in the face of the starting point of the negotiations that were set down three years ago, um, to me shows that they are concentrating on a number of different possible scenarios. One is that mm. there is a no deal and they have somehow to a domestic audience blame um, the European Union. The second, and I think this is more likely that Boris Johnson will reluctantly seek an extension and do it on the basis that he has been reasonable and that because he doesn't have support in the House of Commons, hmm. he therefore needs a majority um, to be able to um, force through such a deal. As I say, it's a very reckless and dangerous game that he's playing. Himself. But but,
5: but it's ha-
3: it is half a backstop, isn't it? Uh, I, I mean, uh, Northern Ireland would remain to all intents and purposes in uh, the European Union until... Stormont decided otherwise in four years from now. This is what is being called as the consent mechanism. And we'll just hear very briefly a little bit. Uh, 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 of what uh, the Brexit Secretary Steve Barclay had to say about the consent mechanism to the BBC this morning.
6: Yeah, but I think it is important, and so there are other aspects uh, of the proposal from the Prime Minister that speaks to that. For example, the new deal for Northern Ireland that is set out uh, in that proposal, uh, and we think it is important that we get You're the executive money.
3: Money will encourage those institutions to 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 get up and running again?
6: Well, it's about more than that. It's about looking at the infrastructure in Northern Ireland. It's looking at how we put in place uh, aspects that are supportive of the all-Ireland economy. And that is part of a much wider approach the Prime Minister is taking to levelling up the United Kingdom as a whole. And it's absolutely right that as part of that levelling up of the United Kingdom, we look at what is the impact on the economy in Northern Ireland. There's many challenges uh, more widely to the economy in Northern Ireland. Steve Barclay speaking to the BBC... Matt Carthy, he he sounds
3: pragmatic uh, and he he sounds reasonable and he seems to be suggesting that this would be good for Northern Ireland and would result in the restoration of the institutions and that people's destiny would be in their own hands. Well, his tone
4: may be reasonable, um, but his actual words defy logic. There's a reason why, and a number of reasons why, the institutions mm-hmm. in the North haven't been re-established. One of them is because of the huge division that there is between the two largest parties, one being my own, um, with, regard to, uh, with regard to how we deal with Brexit. But look at where the people in the North responded yesterday. Every single political party, with the exception of the DUP, saw this for what it was, which was an unworkable, unmanageable um, um, proposition. Why? Every,
3: why? Be, J- just explain uh, to us why.
4: Because it results in a hardening of the border under their, the removal from the north from the customs union as opposed to the single market and um, means that there will be additional checks. We know that in time once checks are in place, it will be required to put in place physical infrastructure to enforce those those checks. If you have any form of um, any form of regulations that require a business operating north to south to fill in um, some paperwork at some point, some businesses or some enterprising spirits to be generous to them will um, figure out a way of avoiding those checks. And in order to actually protect those markets you will need to put in place some form of physical manifestation of a border. We know what that leads, what that leads to. Secondly, the proposition that the um, Stormont Assembly, which, as I mentioned, isn't up and running, mm. would have a consent mechanism. What the British really mean when they say consent is a veto mechanism, because, as we know, there is a thing called the Petition of the Concern, of concern which, um, which is applied to all legislation in the North which we know the DUP have used to block all forms of progressive... So
3: effectively um, this would give the from. DUP a veto?
4: It, it, it could it could well do, and it is unworkable from a European Union perspective. The European Union doesn't apply rules um, in such a way that any parliament, any national parliament, can turn back on agreements that are done. That's the, It's one of the... The criticisms that is often leveled at the EU, in fact, that when EU legislation is locked down, the only way that it can be changed is if there's agreement from all member states. Um, Here we would have a situation where one region of Ireland would be in a position to change and um, uh, change the post relation to businesses and everybody else once every year. So it's absolutely it's lunacy um, as far as EU law is concerned and the outworkings of the EU law. And again, this goes back to Boris Johnson playing to the um, diehards within the Brexit movement, but also playing to the fundamentalists within the DUP and um, to try and provide some political cover, despite the fact that if we're talking about consent. The majority of the people in the North, let's remember once again, voted to remain part of the EU. And the same majority, in fact, its growing majority in my view, have said consistently that they support the position of the EU Mm. as opposed to the British government. So the British government doesn't care about the majority view or the consent of the people in the North. What it cares about at this particular period in time is receiving the support of DUP. Um, And to me, once again, just to repeat this, phrase, it is entirely reckless on the part of the British government. OK. And to be very firm well, well, in responding to them with
3: that. Undoubtedly, it's going to be rejected. Undoubtedly, it is uh, the first strike in an election campaign for the Tories. Uh, but let's uh, just, uh, again, uh, for the sake of our listeners in Northern Ireland, uh, if nothing else, talk about what is being proposed, which seems to be acceptable to the DUP, uh, because Mr. Johnson is said to be proposing two borders. But is he proposing two borders, or is it three borders, or more borders? Because the border on the island of Ireland would have a, a buffer zone in it, which would mean that there would be at least two borders on northern uh, on, on the island of Ireland, uh, perhaps one in Dundalk, and perhaps one in Newry, with a no-man's land in between.
4: Yeah, it doesn't work. It's anybody who knows Ireland knows that, that and that's what um, is being proposed by the way as customs clearing houses and that was in the original paper now it wasn't in um, Johnson's letter yesterday but it would be appear logical as I say that if you're going to put in place any mm. divergences you have to put in place
3: some mechanism Well like he, he did say again in his speech yesterday that there would be no checks on the actual border, but he has said that there would have to be checks on the island of Ireland. So that it implies this buffer zone proposal.
4: Yeah, and again, there's contradictions that go at the heart of British foreign um, policy, and the contradiction has um, gone back to the very first day that Theresa May said. That she planned to take Britain out of the customs union and that she planned to take the north with her, but that she was going to avoid um, any hardening of the border in Ireland. And this is the crux of it. The Mm. British government don't know what they mean or what everybody else means when we say we don't want to see a hardening of the border in our country. What we mean when we say that is that we don't want to see see anything that would make it more difficult for businesses to operate on an all-Ireland basis or anything that would make it more difficult for farmers to trade on a cross-border. Or anything that would make it more difficult Uh, for communities uh, to come together. uh, uh, uh,
3: Undoubtedly, the return of a hard border and checks would do all of those things. But but, but tell tell me this uh, and tell me no more, as uh, they say. If... Uh, Johnson's proposals were to be accepted, Uh, you would say that that would be in breach of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, If there is no deal and they crash out and that results in a hard border, does that mean that the Good Friday Agreement will be breached anyway?
4: It would, but the Good Friday Agreement would, in those circumstances, provide the avenue by which we could um, resolve the problem. Because, as we know, the Good Friday Agreement um, has provision that the people in the North can actually vote to um, reunify Ireland and therefore in this instance remain part of the European Union and that is why we have said from the very outset of these Brexit um, um, talks and from as soon as the vote took Mm. place that it was incumbent on all of us to actually put in place the structures and the plans for dealing with the potential that the people in the north would vote for a united
3: all, Ireland. all, all well and good but what's the mechanism for that uh, because uh, you'd have to imagine a situation uh, where the british government would say no we're not going to a border poll but this is an international agreement how would it be adjudicated
4: it's my view that if an irish government were to put pressure on the british government in especially in the circumstances of a no-deal Brexit that the British government would accede to holding a poll. The fact of the matter is that all the evidence is pointing now to uh, in a situation where the people in the North, if given that choice, would vote for Irish unity. What's incumbent upon all of us is to ensure that if that is the case, that we would make a success of it. Let me say this as a mm. Republican, Michael. I don't want a united Ireland to come about under those circumstances because I want a united Ireland to be about us, um, building and maximising our potential where if we were to do it in those circumstances it would be about trying to minimise the damage that Brexit would cause mm. but if we are in a situation of a no deal Brexit we would have no choice in my view if we were to protect the Good Friday Agreement if we were to protect our peace process yep. if we were to protect um, our all- Well that's economy it. And try and minimise the economic and political and social damage that Brexit would create so but if we're mm. going to, if, we, if this is going to happen and it's very likely that it's one of the scenarios that we will have to contemplate we need to put in place the plans so that we can make it. And, uh, and that uh, is why it has been so disappointing that the government and mm. a fall and others have just refused to have this conversation at all even though it's happening all around us.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, be careful what you wish for. Uh, But you do accept that if there was to be the return of a hard border on this island, it would also mean the return of uh, the guns and uh, the bombs and possibly the British tanks and the guns and the bombs and that Johnson's proposals would result in a hard border. Uh, Rejecting Johnson's proposals would result in a hard border.
4: No, um, I think in terms of... I think we need to be very careful and say that all of us, and particularly those of us with political responsibility, will do everything in our power to ensure that there is no return to conflict. Um, and I believe that we are... But sure.
3: we have already returned to conflict to a large degree, uh, and uh, the re-establishment of a, a border would undoubtedly see an, a, a rise in the number of violent incidents.
4: Well, and ha- we would have to work really hard to try and minimise though, um, um, that mm. rise and to ensure that people protested, um, resisted the notion of any um, border controls um, through peaceful means and through um, political activity as opposed to um, um, violent acts. um, The rejection by the EU of British government's proposition doesn't, in my view, um, necessarily automatically lead to a no-deal Brexit. The default position, let's remember, Mm -hmm. at the British level, is that Boris Johnson... Is obliged to seek an extension. If he seeks an extension, I believe he will be doing so with a view to a general election. I think that's what all this game mm, playing about, about this week is about. Absolutely. Um, and mm, and in the in the event that the British government has a secure majority, then who knows what they're going to come back at? Because I believe I've believed this from the start. I think anybody who understands mm. Irish history or politics believes this. The British government don't care about the north of Ireland. Some people might be surprised that um, they um, have. Complete disregard for the economic well-being of the people who live in any part of our country. They always have, and when it comes down to um, to the crux of it, if a British government actually has a majority, whether that be a Labour or a Tory government, and um, to negotiate a deal, I have no doubt that we will then be in the in the position where We will, we'll hear a different.
3: Okay. Well, it it does seem pretty much inevitable that uh, there'll be another extension. We'll leave it there for the moment, though. And thank you indeed, Matt Carthy, Sinn Fein MEP, for joining us uh, this morning. And as to what regard the British government has uh, for Northern Ireland, well, perhaps uh, that's spelled out in a a statement uh, that uh, Steve Barclay, the Brexit secretary, made in that interview with BBC4 today. He was asked if the proposals the British government are putting forward now are not in line with
6: the Good Friday Agreement and what he thought about that. Well, your point supports an argument that the UK Government has made throughout this process is that these issues should have been dealt with as part of the future economic relationship and not as part of the winding down provisions. And the issue is that we've been trying to address what the future economic relationship would be uh, as part of dis- discussions on the withdrawal agreement, which is the winding down arrangement. So it is important that uh, the four years sits with a, uh, a term uh, in terms of the uh, the uh, that's why it's been set at that and it's important there is democratic consent can you, can you because not what see we're proposing bringing that
3: up every 4 years is it brings about tremendous uncertainty potentially even becomes a dangerous flashpoint given northern ireland's history
6: no i don't because it is something that will shape be shaped by the future uh, economic relationship which is still to come uh, and we need to get on to those trade deals we haven't even gone on to the future trade uh, deal because of the way that the talks were sequenced The British Brexit
3: Secretary Steve Barclay speaking to BBC Radio 4 today.
6: The state pension should be increased
3: uh, by 7 euro that's one of uh, the proposals being made to to government ahead of uh, the budget which will be announced next Tuesday it comes from Alone, the charity which supports older people to age at home and Sean Moynihan, Chief Executive of Alone is on the line and a very good morning to you Sean and uh, thanks for joining us. I, I suppose you could argue that If the pension was to be increased by €7 next year, it would be double the amount that it has been increased the last couple of years because there have been €5 increases, but they haven't been introduced until March.
7: Yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, exactly. But I think I'd also like, I suppose you're probably all Brexit out this morning. (laughs) But ultimately, Mm. if, if, if things like shocks like happened 10 years ago or Brexit happened, Really, we've got to protect, protect services, the community, and the most vulnerable, which is what we maybe didn't quite do last time. So, for us, what we're trying to do is work with lots of other agencies, all trying to work towards getting the pension to be benchmarked at 35% of, of average earnings, so right. that ultimately and- we, have, we put a floor under people when when traumatic issues happen.
3: Uh, and the average industrial wage is, what, around 38,000 or something like that at the moment? Yeah, yep. I,
7: yep. yes, exactly. So I think what I'd say to you is that at our launch there the other day, I think the most powerful thing is is we had people telling the stories of how they managed their money. And obviously we had people talking about how they're struggling with, with in, in high rents, we had people, mm. people struggling with the lack of home so, home support. But really, what the most powerful thing is people talking about you know, one man told a story that ultimately what happened was is the previous day he paid €25 euros a, m- a month to a life insurance, mainly small amount of money would be left, but mostly probably the cost of burial. And if he missed it, it would lapse. But ultimately, he made the choice to pay that because he's always paid it and he didn't want it to lapse. But he knew that was leaving him short for the next two days. And right. These are the decisions that pensioners are having to, having to make. And it's probably very hidden and unseen.
3: Yeah, I'm sure that it is uh, the case because uh, to a large extent we live in a a much better country than many of us will remember and we're a relatively wealthy country. We're being told by some that we're one of uh, the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, I'm not sure if you're old enough like me to remember having to go outside when you wanted to use the toilet on a cold winter's morning. It used to be an incredible experience no matter how used you may have been to it. But apparently there's people still having to do that in this country.
7: Well, look, the, the 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 stats which our government the happy stats to called, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 basically, is to show that that nearly eight hundred thousand older people have housing facility problems. Now, a percentage of them are still using outside toilets, no central heatings, uh, lack of bathroom conditions, hot water, all of these things. So, a lot of this thing lays still under the uh, under the surface, and where. We, it's Positive Aging Week, where we have volunteers, you know, I was at a volunteer training session the other night, and the oldest person in the room joining to be a volunteer was 77, right? Mm. Plenty of positive examples and role models, but not everybody's health holes, not everybody's educational backgrounds thing, not everybody had a job where they got to purchase a house. And ultimately, maybe the, the luxuries that we, you know, you described the journey we brought mm. in on that, that we think, it's because other people worked very hard for 40 or 50 years, and um, all we're asking is, is that make, make sure that there's nearly, I think it's 44%, so roughly half of older people, their only income is the base pension and then if they have to purchase something or a washing machine goes or electricity goes or you play your life insurance they're having to make difficult choices and so ultimately is is nobody wants that for older people and nobody will want it for themselves when they get older.
3: No absolutely not and almost 20,000 people using an outside toilet I understand at the moment. Uh, Your uh, main focus is on helping people to age in their home, uh, but you've 235 people on a, a housing waiting list.
7: Yeah, I think what's interesting is, is and obviously we, 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 we operate Good Morning Loud, we have 200 volunteers in Loud and a couple of staff who go out and support people to age at home. The other thing that's really the big numbers that are coming to us, and it started in Dublin, it's higher in Dublin, but unfortunately we can see by the rent pressure zones hmm. the rental problem and the costs are all spreading out. Like this year, we've had over 200 older people come to us who are on notice to quit. So that means they were privately renting for a long period of time, but for one of the four legitimate reasons the landlord is selling. But unfortunately, older people are really vulnerable to that on a fixed income. How do they get back in? They're not very attractive to landlords because they're on a fixed income. If they're on their own, they can only pay pay, pay X amount. Mm. And we sort of see this hugely on the rise and we really need long-term rents because everybody, anybody in their 40s, 50s, 60s is really, who's renting is only 200 days away, 250 days away from being homeless because legitimately the house can be, can be sold. So we need to sort of change the regulations if we're going to have an awful lot of people renting or else we're going to have an awful lot of 70 year olds with nowhere to live or going around competing with 30 somethings trying to rent rent places and they'll probably end okay. up which historically they did in the smallest, poorest conditions You know, which is where we came out of in the 70s and 80s. Yeah.
3: Well we'll find out what Minister Donoghue has in store for all of us uh, next Tuesday and perhaps uh, you can come back to us after that. Uh, but thank you for joining us this morning, Sean Moynihan, Chief Executive of the Alone Charity. Now you heard yesterday from Conrad Agalaga who told us that they would uh, join a protest outside of Dal Erin, which was being staged by parents and students of Kalosh to Loo. Let's hear now from two of uh, the parents, Aidan Kinsler, who joins us again. He's uh, the Secretary of uh, the Parents Council and Kayleigh Ward who was uh, one of uh, the parents who was protesting yesterday uh, along with her son Alex. Uh, good morning to both of you and thanks uh, for joining us, Aidan, uh, last time uh, we spoke to you you had three children in the school you've decided to take one of the children out, is that right?
8: That's correct Michael um, uh, the eldest boy in the school was so unhappy that um, going into fifth year and starting his leaving cycle he just wanted out he, he was uh, absolutely distraught at what had happened uh, the lack of Irish and uh, um, all the atmosphere was going around it
3: Tell us about your protest yesterday, how did it go? Uh, As I say, Conor and the Gaelic said that they'd be supporting you. I think you had the support of some TDs as well.
8: That's right. Um, Conor and the Gaelic really uh, helped organise quite a bit. We got the support of uh, four other Gael Colosti from from around Dublin and Kildare, uh, which was great to show that uh, there was solidarity from uh, uh, other schools, other Irish medium schools. Uh, a number of TDs did come out as well, some of our local TDs. Gerry Adams in particular uh, was very useful. Declan Branock was there. Um, there was uh, some other Sinn Féin TDs, Cleve and Angus Angus Snully. There were senators as well. I, there was a, a good number. I, I actually can't remember mm. everyone that I shook hands with.
3: Okay. Kayleigh Ward, uh, were you encouraged uh, by what you heard from those who came out to meet you?
9: Absolutely, yeah. We're delighted with the support that we've been getting from the public. So, um, absolutely, we would be just looking for the local support now to, before it's coming from, from oh. the patron of the school and, and the management of the school. Uh,
3: uh, any government TDs come out to meet you?
9: Yes, well, as um, as, as Aidan said there, uh, we did have our local TDs, Gerry Adams and Declan Barnock. Um, Peter Fitzpatrick locally has also been very supportive to Okay. But yeah, absolutely, the wider but community um, of, of TDs and Gael Clossey, that, okay. that but, came but, out. But, but no, yeah. none
3: of them members of uh, the government uh, parties, uh, so uh, no Fine Gael TDs, uh, more to the point? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, no, was that a disappointment to you? Um, I,
9: don't, I don't think we expected it, to be honest with you. We okay. uh, would have liked to uh, have have seen seen uh, and spoken to the minister, but he did mm. sent a uh, representative out to to take our position. So,
5: okay, uh,
3: which uh, we were, also,
8: yeah, yeah. Sorry, we we're also unfortunate that uh, we we don't know dull schedule down, but it turns out that when we arrived, twelve o'clock was the beginning of leaders' question time. So mm. uh, I think there was a, a certain amount of of other overriding uh, timetable pressures that other people who would have come out didn't oh, come
3: out. Okay, but you've, you, you've already met the Minister, haven't you?
8: We did meet the Minister. He was very good and uh, met us uh, but two or three weeks ago and uh, gave us a, an hour of his time. Uh, was very engaged with the issues.
3: Yeah, what, what did Minister McHugh have to say to you?
8: Uh, he did a lot of listening. He was checking off on statistics and where things were going, but he was in listening mode as opposed to uh, telling us what he intended to do. I think he was going away to talk to his officials to, to try and uh, determine what what the situation was and what could be done. Uh, this was three weeks ago, so events have moved on somewhat since.
3: Mm. Can anything be done uh, for exam students this year? Uh,
8: we believe they can. There's a, a couple of initiatives uh, being, being talked about in the department. That we're aware of, uh, we know Jerry Adams has been working very hard in the background, and we know Conor and Gail have also been
10: mm.
8: working hard. Uh, I wouldn't like to go into the details of the initiatives on the airways in case uh, it, it scuppers something that potentially might come out of it. Okay, but there's certainly stuff been talked about that could help exam students.
3: Well, this late in the day, uh, it certainly uh, would be a a, a tall task uh, to achieve something uh, before uh, they go into their exams. Kayleigh, uh, tell us about Alex. What year is he in?
9: Um, Alex is in third year. um, I was about to say, myself and Aidan both have have children in third year um, in the school at present. And it's it's, it's just a bit... it's an upheaval for them Um, I suppose um, I I agree with you Mm. Um, you know six weeks into the school year now I think the the pre-junior certificate examinations are going to be in January next year which is quite early so realistically I, I don't see what they can do um, to to make things easier for for those children that have now started to learn in English, and um, all of the subjects that they've been learning in Irish up to now.
3: Right. So um, uh, so Alex went through all of first year and all of second year, learning all of his subjects through Irish.
9: Well, yes, and I mean Alex went to uh, 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 a a school and he mm. went to an Irish speaking preschool as well. So he's always been learning a scéala, and so it's 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 a change for him. We <laughs> will
3: say. Uh, and how significant a change do you believe the change is, or how concerned are you about the change?
9: Well, I mean, in terms of the change, he, do, he doesn't really say that much about the classes or what's going on in the class. Um, he's very upset about um, being separated from his, his other classmates. So, for mm. example, he's in a Kloche, Q, Q Holland maths class with just one other Colossal student. And, um, you know, they're, they're separated. They're, they're not even sitting together in the class, and, and it's a very large class compared to the, the class that he would have had last year and that's more upsetting to him than, um, you know, the, the actual learning through English. Um, obviously, he speaks English fluently as well, but um, he he's not, you know, he doesn't know whether to do his homework in English or in Irish. Mm. Uh, one of his subjects, he actually does learn geography through Irish. Currently, I know a lot of students don't, but he's actually getting his notes in Irish and in English, and he's he's totally confused as to what he should be doing. Yeah. He doesn't know, you know, is it an English school now? is Am I supposed to do this in Irish? Is it homework? Is it upper wallia? You know, it's mm. um, and the atmosphere in the school, his friends are leaving, and um, you know, friends that he's been in, in school with since he was four um, are moving to different schools. And well, that's
3: it. Undoubtedly, it's, then, e- it's easier to deal with some subjects, maths, let's say, than it would be to deal with history.
9: Well, you know, there's a lot of terminology that's been learned and mm. it has to be relearned yeah. um, and in English. A lot of the geographical t- um, terminology, for example, he's learned through Irish. He, he might not even know what that is in English, mm. and, and that's where the struggle is. And uh, for a lot of the kids, um, I know we put up a video of two girls on the way to the doll yesterday, mm. and that was the key thing that they wanted to say. They're both uh, doing their junior third as well this year, and they are struggling with having to learn those key words and those, uh, the terminology that they didn't have in English. Um, and and trying to prepare for for those examinations now in January, which is only a couple of months away, and mm. um, to have to learn two years of work.
3: Okay, and I, I think that story makes it easy for those of us who aren't uh, as close as you are to it to understand the problems that your children are, are facing. One of uh, the problems in finding a solution, Aidan, is getting the teachers. And I, I understand uh, that a, a number of posts uh, have been advertised uh, with the closing date of the eleventh of October. Do you think that that could form part? Of a solution.
7: Certainly, uh,
8: the recruitment of teachers has become an issue. Um, they lost a lot of teachers in a very short period of time. Uh, there's never been real investigation or, or consideration as to why so many left and uh, the reasons they left and, and what they can do to ensure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, teacher recruitment is key to this. Uh, Yes, we understand that they are making efforts to, to do it, but the big concern we have is, is is that they appear to be applying bureaucratic processes to it, and they're not using, um, let's say, some out-of-the-box stuff to try and encourage other teachers to, to, to come and, and um, fill the gaps that are there.
3: Okay. well, the minister hasn't been available to us. Uh, You unfortunately didn't get to meet with uh, the minister yesterday. You did a couple of weeks ago and met with a representative for Minister McHugh yesterday. Undoubtedly, your campaign will continue, and I'm sure that we'll be talking again in the future. But thank you both for joining us here on the programme this morning, following on from that protest outside of Leinster House yesterday. Aidan Kinsella, who's the secretary of the Colostaloo Parents Council and Kayleigh Ward, who has a son attending Colostaloo. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
11: Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Gemma is one of those listeners. She phoned in to say that there's no way we can accept this proposal from the UK. Is there not a proviso, Michael, that it would have to be voted on every four years? If that's the case, that's a load of nonsense. I think we need to call Boris's bluff. And if they go without a deal, so be it. But I don't think they will because the Parliament have voted not to do that, says Gemma.
3: Yeah, I think that's a fairly good analysis of it all, Gemma.
11: Another listener, Tom, says, Do you think, Michael, that, they, that the British government floated that story uh, the day before yesterday about all of these uh, custom posts going up so that this proposal wouldn't seem as bad? Uh,
3: I think it's part of the same proposal in actual fact, yeah
11: Okay. (laughs) uh,
3: I'm not sure that it was the British government who who did uh, leak it Uh, they've been suggesting or at least there's been suggestions uh, that it was leaked uh, to RTE by the Irish government
11: Deirdre says what is wrong with Boris Johnson that he cannot do more to try and reach an agreement that works for everyone. She says he reminds her of Donald Trump because he's determined to plough ahead with his own plans regardless of anyone else's thoughts or feelings.
3: Bullshit. <laughs> now I know uh, some people will have stopped in their tracks at hearing me say that uh, because it is on parliamentary language uh, but uh, wait till we get talking about the testicles. Okay, um, right, uh, because uh, the bullshit is uh, a quote from a, a very senior. Uh, politician, uh, the most powerful man in uh, the world, uh, the American president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, who's under a lot of pressure at the moment. I'll explain the other comment uh, in a moment, uh, which uh, really took a lot of people by surprise yesterday. Uh, but uh, as you know, uh, there's a move uh, by the Democrats uh, to have uh, the president of uh, America impeached. And he's described uh, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, Adam Schiff as Shifty Schiff, a low life, saying he should resign from office in disgrace. And he also rounded on uh, Nancy Pelosi and Schiff on Twitter, Twitter, accusing Democrats of focusing on bullshit. He's been defending himself in terms of why uh, this impeachment uh, act should come into play or not.
5: Well, the whistleblower was very inaccurate. The whistleblower started this whole thing by writing a report on the conversation I had with the president of Ukraine. And the conversation was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. I saw Rick Scott. I saw many of the senators talking about it. Many of the congressmen talking about it. Not a thing wrong. Unless you heard the Adam Schiff version where he made up my conversation. He actually made it up. It should be criminal. It should be treasonous. He made it up. Every word of it made up. And read to Congress as though I said it. And I'll tell you what. He should be forced to resign. Adam Schiff, he's a lowlife. He should be forced to resign. He took a perfect conversation, realized he couldn't read it to Congress because it was perfect. It was a very nice conversation. I knew many people were on the phone. Not only were many people on the phone, we had stenographers on the phone, take it down, word for which was perfect. And he reported it and, and said it to Congress and to the American people. And it was horrible what he said, coming from me. But it was all fabricated. He should resign from office in disgrace. And frankly, they should look at him for treason because he is making up the words of the President of the United States. Not only words, but the meaning. And it's a disgrace. It should not be allowed to happen.
3: Well, what a horrible man. A Shifty low life, if ever there was, who should resign from office in disgrace. That's the President of the United States, Donald Trump, that I'm speaking about, of course, uh, not Mr Schiff. Uh, And uh, apologies uh, for the use of uh, that unparliamentary language a a little bit earlier on. Sometimes uh, I think uh, you have to quote directly uh, for people to understand what was being said by that horrible, low-life, shifty man who calls himself Donald Trump the President of America we'll come back to the other horrible man uh, who's a, another world leader who used terrible language yesterday uh, and uh, in a most inappropriate way uh, a little bit later on in the programme
11: We'll go back to our lovely yep. listeners Michael uh, Theresa phoned in in relation to the pension increase and she doesn't know what all the fuss could possibly be or should be about giving pensioners 7 euro she says Pensioners are people who worked hard all their lives, paid their taxes. They are entitled to that. And she says when President Trump came to Ireland, there was no problem spending a fortune on his visit. Priorities, priorities, says Theresa. Another listener, John from Kells, on the same topic, says that costs are rising and a seven euro increase for old age pensioners is not too much to ask for, he believes. Okay,
3: well, you can ask. It may not be too much, uh, but I'm not sure uh, if uh, €7 will be given to pensioners this year. I'm not sure for that matter if €5 will be given to pensioners, uh, but we'll find out all next Tuesday
11: on the situation at Colossaloo Sean was in touch he texted in to say that the Aided system is not working give Colossaloo the supports it needs we need a comprehensive plan for Irish medium education from start to finish support the Gailliga for All campaign on the other hand Liam says why do parents want to impose this on their children he believes that Irish is useless in the modern world it's just a luxury not a functional language all right well
3: yeah that's uh, an argument i, I think that uh, some people would put forward uh, obviously uh, not uh, the parents and students of Cloche de Luz.
11: Going then to a topic we covered yesterday, the dog fouling, Michael. We had a couple of comments in relation to that. Uh, a listener says, they can't, Tom from Cass, they can't enforce the law for dogs not having muzzles when they should have. So how do you think they're going to clean up after dogs whose owners just stand by and watch them do their business and then walk off? Jim and Navin thinks it's all talk and no action on litter lads and dog fouling The dogs run free in our parks historic sites like Tara and on our beaches no point in talking about trying to do something about it because the laws that are there are not being enforced
3: well that's the thing the laws are there and it is a question to some degree of enforcement another local issue was raised in the Dáil yesterday and this is uh, the issue of uh, Sron House uh, And the fear that uh, the service uh, will be closed to to users. The Taoiseach has asked the Minister with Responsibility for Disabilities, Finian McGrath, to take a a look at this. Uh, It was put to the Taoiseach yesterday uh, that uh, Mr. McGrath, the Minister, committed to providing a range of accessible respite care supports for people with disabilities and for their families, and that in direct contradiction. Of that, the HSC unilaterally decided to close Shrutton House, and the Taoiseach was asked to ask the Minister, Phineas McGrath, to ensure that the service is protected and will continue to be provided. Uh,
4: an extra £10 million,
2: uh, was provided in the budget for this year to provide additional respite care, uh, which is so important for uh, families and carers, um, that allowed for an additional respite house to be opened in each community health care region in the country. Um, I don't know the circumstances around the particular one the Deputy mentions, um, but I will ask uh, Minister McGrath to engage with the Manage.
3: That's uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Leo Radker, uh, talking a- about uh, that service uh, for so many local people at Shrutton House and has said that he will ask uh, the Minister to take a-, a look at the situation and undoubtedly will get clarity on that in time to come.
11: Just going back then, Michael, to the dog fowling, Margaret was listening in to that interview with Councillor Mayview yesterday, and Margaret says that I live in a housing estate, Michael, and I live right opposite a green area. Every morning, I see a resident from another estate walking into our estate with his dog, lets the dog off the lead on the green area, lets the dog poo all over the place doesn't pick up a thing, puts the dog back on the lead and walks off. Mm. What are you to do? I wouldn't feel comfortable saying anything to the man because I don't know him personally. But that is what we are up against. Yeah,
3: well, it's not unique. No, <laughs> you're, no, you're not. You're unfortunately, not it's not unique. Yeah, yeah, it happens all the time.
11: Going back then, if I can, Michael, just Mm. to the final comment on Brexit. Tim says the bottom line is that we don't want borders or we don't want checks. That was the aim of the backstop. The reason why it was put in place and the UK agreed to it at the time. So why should we accept anything less and possibly compromise the Good Friday Agreement. The only reason nobody wants this is because we are afraid of going back to the bad old days. We do not want that and the Irish government must stand firm and hopefully our EU colleagues, colleagues will continue to stand by us.
3: All right, well, I, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it's certainly an argument that most people seem to be asking, but not everybody. Uh, and indeed, Uh, Some would argue that there are already borders in place, borders that don't need to be placed, borders that have been put in place by the Irish government. Uh, This is what Geoffrey Donaldson had to say about this earlier today to the BBC.
12: We have a currency border on the island of Ireland. That was actually created by the Irish government, who decided to leave the sterling zone and join the euro a number of years ago. And there was no fuss about that. It didn't uh, destroy the Good Friday Agreement. We also have a fiscal border on the island of Ireland. The tax regime is very different in the Irish Republic to it is... In Northern Ireland so I don't buy this argument that because you have a customs border that that somehow uh, radically alters the situation. Um, uh, uh, Surely a currency border uh, highlights the presence of a border even more starkly because it involves every single citizen who crosses that border using a different currency whereas of course customs uh, is only about the movement of goods, not people.
3: An interesting argument, I suppose. Uh, That's uh, the DUP's uh, Geoffrey Donaldson speaking to BBC Radio 4 today and suggesting that the Irish government has put in place that currency border, which has led to problems. But as I say, not everybody agrees with that point of view. Uh, Let's hear from Trevor Lockhart, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Vane Valley Cooperative, which is one of uh, the largest agricultural cooperatives in uh, Northern Ireland. uh, And he foresees problems uh, as a result of what is being proposed now by the British government. We now are faced with a customs border between Northern Ireland and the Republic
12: and wider Europe. But perhaps more significantly, we have the uncertainty of having a rolling cycle every four years where there will be a decision taken as to whether or not we follow a rule book closely aligned to the UK or to the European Union. And that is not a basis on which a business can take decisions. So today,
3: this is not representative of what we consider to be a landing zone for a Brexit Mm -hmm. deal. That's Trevor Lockhart of Vane Valley Cooperative speaking to the BBC on behalf of business leaders. In Northern Ireland, uh, which was a point that was argued when Geoffrey Donaldson responded to it on BBC.
12: Most of our goods are sold to Great Britain. Uh, There is no customs uh, uh, checks and uh, no customs uh, uh, levies uh, for goods travelling from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. In fact, that's the reason why we want to see Northern Ireland remain within a UK customs arrangement because the bulk of our trade is with... uh, Great Britain. So I don't accept that and I would challenge the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium to explain how having a customs border in the Irish Sea separating us from our biggest market uh, wouldn't have a devastating impact on our economy and on the businesses that do their trade with Great Britain which are are of course the majority of businesses in Northern Ireland. 70% of the goods that leave Belfast Port are destined for Great
3: Britain. So there you have it. Jeffrey Donaldson of the DUP speaking to BBC Radio 4 today. And let's stay with Brexit. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, is on the line. Good morning to you, Sean, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. It's been a relatively busy 24 hours. It's uh, probably going to be busier over the course of the next 24 hours with uh, the Prime Minister due to make a statement to the House of Commons. In about an hour's time, we'll have the official response uh, to the British proposals from. The European Union later on. What's your assessment of where this is going?
2: Morning, Michael. Yeah, the EU have been casting the eyes over it for the last 24 hours. Pretty lukewarm response, really, and they don't think it. it really meets the standard that the backstop set and lots of questions being asked about whether this is a serious offer for Boris Johnson, whether maybe it's a basis for negotiations in the future as well. But even, I think even if the EU came out today and said, absolutely, this is great, we can do this, this is no problem, there's not enough time in the next two mm. weeks before the EU Council meeting and then three or four weeks as it is before Brexit is due to happen to actually implement it. So mm. I think where we're probably heading this month is towards a likely extension. I know Boris Johnson has said he, he b- rules that out. He doesn't want to do it and mm. was very strong on that yesterday. But the law is a law at the moment in the UK and if there isn't a deal by after that Council meeting, he does after a request. But, a but even
3: if there is a deal, as you say, there would have to be a short extension at a, a minimum to allow for that deal.
2: Exactly. At the very mm. minimum, there would have to be a couple of months just even to thrash it through, get through some of the, the technical detail of how it's going to be done. I mean, he talks a lot about technology in avoiding customs checks in Northern Ireland, but mm. I think the government here and others are kind of wondering, you know, where, where is this technology? What is it? And even if it did exist, to set it up for all the companies who would need it, would take time to make sure everyone is uh, has access to the software and to track all those different vehicles yeah. that are going north to south, would, would take time. So uh, I, I think... I, 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 I I
3: don't think there's anybody who can understand it. I certainly don't. I have a fairly old phone. He must have a very good phone because he's talking about GMS technology and that sort of stuff, isn't he?
2: Well, he's got... I I just pictured this warehouse that they have somewhere in the UK that is full of this technology, flying cars and other things Hmm. that are far beyond our understanding would seem to be able to fix Brexit.
3: Absolutely. But, I mean, let's suppose for a minute uh, that the impossible happened and uh, the European Union was to agree to what's being proposed. Would Would he get it through Parliament?
2: Suggestion in the UK seems to be he probably would. There's some talk now. It is in the Telegraph. You have to take that with a pinch of salt. That there are <laughs> Labour rebels who would, yeah. uh, who would support the deal. There, he seems to have the support of the the,
3: the DUP. Uh,
2: the, well, the DP, first of all, which crucially has given him the support of the ERG within his own party, because they're saying, you know, we're not going to be more unionists than the unionists and we'll go along with that. Mm. Uh, the question then is, of course, the 21 MPs that he expelled from his party and to talk to them, most of them want a deal, but the relationship there with Boris Johnson is very bad, and whether they would accept a deal uh, on this particular front is hard to tell. So it's unclear if he does have the votes. He certainly, uh, I mean, Theresa May came back three times thinking she had them and didn't, but it could probably be done, but I think that's a mm point because the Europe isn't going to
3: accept this deal. Yeah, I, I, I found it funny uh, that you referenced uh, the Telegraph uh, because uh, the Telegraph obviously would be a, a great supporter of Mr Johnson and it's suggesting in its analysis uh, that there's pressure on Dublin because uh, of what he's proposing. Uh, they may be correct in suggesting uh, that he, he could get it through Parliament but uh, I, I'm not sure that they're right when they say that there's pressure on Dublin because as you said earlier on uh, there seems uh, to be a consensus uh, across the Europe European Union, and this looks set to be rejected without
5: a doubt.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Telegraph at times has become a parody of a newspaper, really, yeah. in, in the last while, with its support of the Tory party and you know, Boris Johnson's position, and of course he was paid a very, very handsome sum for very many years to write for the Telegraph, so you have to take that into account as well. I don't think there is a huge amount of pressure on Dublin to accept this for and Coveney have both said, you know, politely, it must be said, they said this probably isn't going to work, but they'll have another look at it. Gieber Hofstadt last night, one of the first things he said was it doesn't meet the standard of Ireland, therefore it doesn't meet our standard mm. and there hasn't been any real budge on the European side to hang us out to dry. So I think the the standards that the EU have set haven't been met here. The bigger and wider question possibly is is it a jumping-off point? Is there mm. enough in Boris Johnson conceding on the single market for Northern Ireland and on getting the DUP on site for Europe to say, OK, perhaps there's something workable here? Johnson suggested in his letter to John claude Juncker that he could move a little bit further. How much further, we're not sure, and maybe that will form the, the basis of negotiations over the next two weeks leading into the General Affairs Council and the European Council.
3: Right, uh, and if all of this results in a general election in the United Kingdom... Uh, that, in effect, will be a referendum, won't it?
2: I suppose it will, a referendum on not only Brexit itself, but Boris Johnson's plan. is interesting polling by YouGov yesterday actually had the Lib Dems either just ahead or slightly behind Labour. The two of them were pretty neck and neck, which was interesting given how badly they did at the last election and that the Tories would, would win uh, with a, a, a just a, a bare about majority. So... If there was, I mean if that was to happen tomorrow and Boris Johnson is and my apologies now the doll bells mm. are going to ring in the background yep. for a bit of atmosphere for you here in Leinster House um, but if that were uh, to happen then he would have a, probably a stronger hand in Europe and I think uh, you know the European Union attitude is if it does happen we'll either negotiate with whoever comes into to place Boris Johnson or we will ha- perhaps have to take him a bit more seriously if he comes back with the majority but maybe his view then changes mm. as well
3: uh, And yesterday uh, when the doll was Setting, I think, uh, to a large degree, uh, people were relying on leaks. We have concrete proposals today. No doubt the government will be asked uh, to respond in the House.
2: Yeah, the Taoiseach is on his way at the moment to uh, Denmark and Sweden. He's there for a two-day trip to meet leaders, so he won't be in the House today to answer, mm-hmm. but I'm sure he'll be asked by the reporters who are travelling on that trip. Likely that Simon Coveney will take leaders' questions, although interestingly, on a matter of domestic politics, uh, leaders' questions the last two days haven't really focused on Brexit. Mm-hmm. Neil Martin and Marilyn McDonald and others bringing up other issues as they kind of smell the prospect of a potential election here if there's a long extension. And, um, you know, the general mm-hmm. the- theory here being there's no real votes in Brexit. But Simon Coveney is also before the European Affairs Committee later on, so we'll likely hear a more detailed government response. And, of course, we're awaiting that EU response as well in the next few hours.
3: Okay, A lot ahead. uh, And, of course, uh, there'll be uh, the uh, debate uh, that takes place uh, following the statement from the Prime Minister in the House of Commons, uh, which uh, is set to get underway in about an hour from now. But thanks uh, for that, Sean. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. Now, let's... uh, go back to what Mr Johnson said to his own party yesterday. Uh, A lot of people uh, looking on it as uh, a way of him introducing these proposals. Uh, Others have suggested that it was nothing short of electioneering.
1: I feel sometimes we're like a world-class athlete with a pebble in our shoe. There is one part of the British system that seems to be on the blink. If Parliament were a laptop, then the screen would be showing, I'm afraid, the pizza wheel of doom if Parliament if Parliament were a school if Parliament were a school Ofsted would be shutting it down or putting it in special measures if Parliament were a reality TV show then the whole lot of us I'm afraid would have been voted out of the jungle by now but at least but at least we'd have had the consolation of watching the Speaker being forced to eat a kangaroo testicle.
3: There you have it. Uh, that's uh, that uh, comment I was talking about earlier on uh, from uh, another low-life politician, Shifty. Uh, Johnson, uh, that time around, the British Prime Minister, referring uh, to the Speaker, uh, who's uh, an independent uh, person in uh, the Parliament, uh, the equivalent of our Kian Corla here, uh, talking about his Parliament, uh, which uh, I think most politicians would tend to have a, a lot of respect for, in uh, not such a respectful way. But that's uh, the British Prime Minister. Is he electioneering? Or what? Well, a lot of people would feel that he is, including Jeremy Corbyn. It's worse
12: than Theresa May's deal. I can't see it getting the support that he thinks it will get. And it will take us into a regime in Britain of deregulation of uh, undercutting and I think will also undermine the Good Friday Agreement.
3: Undermine the Good Friday Agreement, that's a a statement that uh, a lot of people have made in line with what Jeremy Corbyn was saying there yesterday, but also uh, it comes after a very long period of negotiation. We're three years into this, and Boris Johnson was telling the Tories yesterday that it's being a long road to Brexit.
1: After three and a half years, people are beginning to feel that they are being taken for fools, and they're beginning to suspect that there are forces in this country that simply don't want Brexit delivered at all. And if they turn out to be right in that suspicion, then I believe there will be grave consequences for trust in our democracy. Let's get Brexit done on October the 31st. Let's get it done because of the opportunities that it will bring, not just to take back control of our money and our borders and our laws, to regulate differently and better, to take our place as a proud and independent global campaigner for free trade. Let's get it done because delay is so pointless and expensive and debilitating. Let's get it done because we need to build our positive new partnership with the EU because it cannot be stressed too much that so this is not an anti-European party. This is not an anti-European country. We are European. We love Europe. I love Europe anyway. I love it. But after 45 years of really dramatic constitutional change in our relationships, we must have a new relationship with the EU, a positive and confident partnership, and we can do it. And today in Brussels, we are tabling what I believe are constructive and reasonable proposals, which provide a compromise for both sides. We will, under no circumstances, have checks at or near the border in Northern Ireland. We will. We will respect the peace process, and the the Good Friday Agreement. And, 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 And by a process of renewable democratic consent by the Executive and the Assembly of Northern Ireland, we will go further and protect the existing regulatory arrangements for farmers and businesses on both sides of the border. And at the same time, we will allow the UK whole and entire to withdraw from the EU with control over our own trade policy from the start. And we will protect our precious union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland.
3: Boris Johnson speaking at uh, the Conservative Party conference in Manchester yesterday. Now, is he serious or is he electioneering? And if he's electioneering, is he trying to blame Europe and everyone else because it has proved impossible to reach a deal? That he is coming forward with this very fair and reasonable compromise for Ireland and for Northern Ireland, but uh, those people in Europe have uh, proven uh, to be unreasonable. Uh, That's a a theory that a a lot of people have been putting forward and uh, Sean Defoe mentioned earlier on uh, that Guy Verhofstadt has uh, been reacting to the proposals put forward by Britain. Uh, He's been speaking to ITV. The
8: first assessment of uh, nearly every member in the Brexit steering group uh, was
12: not positive at all. Do you think it's a serious effort or is this just trying to put the blame
3: on you. I think that last point was not so bad. Not a bad point. That's Gieber for Hopstadt. All right, uh, we'll uh, have more from Brexit a little bit later in the programme.
2: The Michael Reed Show.
3: Fianna Fáil is proposing changing uh, the law so that anybody who is found carrying a knife with the intent on causing harm to another person would face a maximum sentence of 10 years instead of the current maximum sentence of 5 years. We'll talk about this with Fianna Fáil's Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee who's a spokesperson for her party on justice in Shanodern. And A very good morning to you Senator and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, we We do know that there's been a significant increase in the number of knives seized by Gardaí, some 66%, uh, I understand, uh, from what Jim O'Callaghan told the Dáil yesterday. 2,000 knives seized by guards in 2018 compared to 1,200 knives in 2016. But we don't know how many crimes have been committed by people using knives or how many people have been stabbed.
10: Yes, that's right, uh, Michael. The CSO data isn't um, clear on that. But what we do know is that there's been a significant increase in the amount of people that are dying by uh, knife crime. And we had four people in Dublin just this summer that died by knife crime. You might remember the very tragic case of a teenager who was stabbed to death in Dundrum. And indeed, last week in Dundalk, a guard in the course of his of duty was flashed in his, in his face. So that's a very, very serious incident in itself. Mm. So it is escalating. We know from anecdotal evidence that, you know, I, I hear from constituents all the time, they're afraid to let their teenagers out at night because more and more teenagers are carrying knives.
3: Right. And why is it that they're carrying knives? Is it that they want to attack somebody or is it that they want to defend themselves?
10: Well, I suppose there's a growing subculture there um, of of uh, people who want to carry knives for their own protection. And I suppose that's the intention, that it's for their own protection. But sometimes an argument can get out of hand, and knives come out, and it can have very, very tragic consequences for a lot of people involved. So I think it, this is about just tackling that head on. We don't want to get this uh, knife culture. Uh, we don't want to allow it get out of hand like it has happened in London because once it happens and once it gets out of hand it's very very hard to control so we want to lift this in the bud and that's why we're proposing this uh, legislation it was that second stage debate in the Dáil during the week and it's next excellent piece of legislation it will act as a deterrent for people to carry knives with the intention of to cause injury and it's increasing the sentence from from five years to Mm. ten years now. That's just a maximum sentence. There will still be uh, judicial discretion involved there. But, Michael, it's it's really essential, I think, at this stage to protect uh, primarily young people and members of the public.
3: Right. Uh, And uh, is there ever a case that uh, somebody is sentenced to five years in prison for uh, being stopped, searched and uh, discovered to have a, a knife in their possession?
10: Uh, oh I don't have that data on me Mm.
3: but I'm sure there have been cases Okay, uh, I think it would be relatively unusual uh, and if that is true uh, it would be relatively unusual that they would face a 10 year sentence uh, well
10: it's 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 more of a deterrent you know we want young people to realize the seriousness of actually carrying these and it's primarily young people that are involved in this kind of subculture but it can go across the board of course but we just want to 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 make a a clear statement that carrying this is completely unacceptable um, and involving yourself in knife crime is completely unacceptable and Mm. it's a very very serious crime and there is a maximum penalty but of course This is just legislation. What we Mm. need also is a a public awareness campaign. Perhaps even a knife amnesty should be uh, advisable. But this is, as far as I guess, you know, we're legislators. Mm. It's our job to put forward legislation to feed into a um, a wider body of work to deter People from carrying knives
3: or other implements Hmm. in a public place. Uh, And that's it. Uh, I mean, it's up to you as politicians to legislate. It's up to the judiciary uh, then to act on that legislation. But if uh, they don't impose those maximum sentences, it's probable to say that the young people who carry knives won't be aware of the legislation. Uh, They may hear that someone got two months or a year, but uh, they won't know that you face five years or ten years for that matter.
10: Well, you know, that, that that's a valid point that you make, Michael, but that's why I'm saying that this legislation can only feed into um, an overall uh, strategy to heighten awareness about this. And, you know, of course, we need um, extra guarder resources in particular black spots as well, and that's something that we will be uh, proposing as well, that extra guarder resources are, are deployed to certain areas where we know this type of um, public order behaviour and dangerous um knife carrying offences are going on so you know it would feed into an overall um, piece Mm. of work this is only one piece of the jigsaw but I think it's an important piece Uh, we need to show that we are very very serious about knife crime because it can have devastating consequences and uh, not only for the victim but for the actual perpetrator itself you know and it can destroy lives across the, the board so um, we feel this is an important piece of legislation.
3: Yeah, and uh, it's an issue that affects everybody right uh, across uh, the country. It's not uh, unique to the bigger towns uh, and cities. Uh, indeed, uh, Independent Minister Kevin Boxer-Moran has been proposing uh, a knife amnesty. Uh, I take it from what you said a moment ago, you support that proposal. But he's a, a taxi business in Athlone, and he says that he, he's uh, witnessed an increase in knife crime there Uh, and uh, I suppose that uh, to a large degree tells us that this is a problem right uh, across the country. We had an amnesty similar to that years ago. Do they work?
10: Um, I believe it did work and uh, quite a few knives were actually handed over at that point so you know we'd have to obviously kind of consider uh, a knife amnesty and and the terms of reference in relation to that but uh, it it would be part of the, the overall kind of picture of Um, reducing knife crime. And that's the story that you told about Um, Kevin boxer Warren seeing an increase in in people carrying knives in taxis. I've heard similar stories as well. It's not just on the streets, it's in taxis. And that's very, very dangerous. If people are in an enclosed space, they're trying to carry out their their business and provide a public service, and and they're opening themselves to attack with a knife. Mm. So we need to protect the public in relation to this. Um, as I said, knives are very, very serious and dangerous implements if they're used incorrectly, and we need to deter mm-hmm. that. Did
3: you, Did you understand uh, the government's uh, response uh, to the proposed amendment to this legislation? Because uh, the government says it, it, it's not opposing the amendment. Uh, in principle, it uh, agrees with what Fianna Fáil is saying, uh, but there were a number of caveats.
10: Well, I suppose this is just a second stage debate and a lot of these issues can be teased out before it comes back into the doll for for the, the next stage of the debate. Mm. So, you know, this is what we do in, in the Oropus. We sit down with other parties. We can tease out issues like that. The government might have a problem with one or two things. We'll see if we can reach a compromise on it. Um, we, we work with all parties across the board. It was great to see that the government weren't actually opposing it. Mm. Um, so hopefully...
3: Uh, any but in, in the response yesterday, Minister David Staunton uh, did highlight uh, some problems, as he saw it. He said uh, that you'd be increasing the sentencing for knife crimes, uh, but uh, not for other comparable offences and sometimes more serious offences. Uh, and uh, that there would be a disproportionate penalty for more serious offences, uh, such as possession of a firearm.
10: I suppose that's an issue that um, our justice spokesperson, Jim O'Callaghan, will have to sit down with the minister and see if we can kind of come to a compromise on that. If other sentences need to be increased, so be it. We feel uh, very, very strongly about the need to increase penalties for knife crimes.
3: He was also suggesting that there may be the need uh, for a money message uh, because of the increase in criminal penalties.
10: Well, this money message um, issue is something that uh, has been an ongoing issue in, in the Dáil and mm. in the Charlotte for the past number of years. And I think the government are using it to, to block many pieces of legislation that they just don't want to be seen to be opposing it. So I would be yeah. very disappointed if the government did impose a money message on this legislation. We've gotten a lot of public support in relation to it. We introduced this in Dáil last summer. Now it has reached second stage, and I would be very, very disappointed if Fine Gael tried to block that by using the money message.
3: Okay. Well, as you say, it's at second stage. Uh, undoubtedly, we'll hear more in uh, the coming weeks, and uh, perhaps after that. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Cliffordley.
13: Email Michael now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
3: Now, One in Four, as I'm sure you know, is a group uh, that works with adults who were sexually abused as children and also works with uh, people who sexually abuse uh, children. Yesterday, it published its annual report and we're joined by Maeve Lewis, who is uh, the executive director of One in Four. And a very good morning to you, Maeve, and thanks, as always, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. You met 911 people, you say, in 2008. Uh, But normally when we talk uh, about the course of a year, it's over a period of 12 months. Uh, You had to to close your waiting list for four months. Uh,
13: Yes, we did, um, Michael. I mean, in 2018, there were were two events, uh, the Belfast Rape Trial and the visit of Pope Francis, which caused a real surge in the number of people contacting us. And we simply weren't able to meet them. And uh, so our waiting list was closed for four months, including during the time when Pope Francis was visiting Ireland. And um, when we did meet people for the first time, we met 111 people for the first time last year. A quarter of those people told us that they had tried to take their own lives before they ever contacted us. So, Michael, I mean, it is a huge worry what happened to the people that we couldn't even put on a waiting list um, are they out there, are they okay or did some of them actually go on to take their own lives um, and that is you know, a terrible, terrible worry for us
3: It really is a, an incredible statistic uh, Is it one that has shocked you to think that a, a quarter of the people that made contact uh, contemplated suicide? Uh,
13: no, I mean that would be fairly consistent um, across all recent years and um, it just highlights the huge damaging impact of sexual abuse on children and that you know the harm mm. doesn't stop when the abuse stops but it goes on to have an impact on every aspect of a person's life and um, you know people who men and the women men and women who come to us talk about their struggles with how they see themselves how they struggle in relationship how they struggle in parenting the impact it has on their professional lives so um, it is without kind of good support and intervention, many mm. people are driven to utter despair and find themselves with suicidal thoughts.
3: Why is that the case, do you think? Or are you able to explain why it has such an, an impact
13: on people? Well, I mean, if a child is sexually abused, um, they're being treated like an object, not a human being. Um, their unique humanity is violated. And... Um, Most children are sexually abused by somebody they know, so there's a huge breach of trust, um, and people carry that mistrust then into their adult lives and find it very difficult to trust in relationships. Very often the offender, and we know from our work with offenders how this operates, Mm. that the offender will make the child believe that it is something about them, that they're in some way dirty or contaminated, uh, that is provoking the abuse. So that hugely damages the child's sense of themselves, and they grow up feeling different from other people, uh, feeling um, contaminated, feeling as if there's something wrong with them. Um, people, you know, describe absolutely hating themselves. And, you know, remember, we're not talking about a few individuals. We're talking about one in four Irish people who experience sexual harm. So you can imagine the impact that is having on us as a society as well, mm. um,
3: so so if you have four people in a room, one of them is in that situation, in other words, uh, 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 generally speaking, across the
13: board. Generally speaking. Yeah. Now, um, uh, yeah, or if you think of a class of school children, if there's, yeah. you know, 24 kids in fourth class, it's very likely five or six of them have had some experience of sexual harm. And I mean, that is, it's mind-boggling, even this day, I still find those statistics mind-boggling. And
3: why would somebody do that? Uh, I think that's a a question uh, that a lot of people listening to us now are asking themselves, uh, and uh, you may have some answers because you work with offenders.
13: Why do people do that? A very small portion of people who sexually harm children are paedophiles. You know, their sexual attraction is to children. Um, But in the main, a lot of, most of the, the men attending our Phoenix program, are actually in adult relationships they're married and mm-hmm. uh, they have children uh, so it really is all about power and control you know we have found that um our our offenders have huge problems with intimacy have very uh, huge difficulties in engaging in healthy normal adult relationships and um obviously the other answer is because they can um, most men who sexually abuse children, and indeed women who sexually abuse children, do it because they have access to children, uh, they can pinpoint vulnerable children who they know are not going to tell, and they can coerce or persuade the child um, mm. that it is something about the child that but, is wrong. But, but
3: did you say that generally they're not paedophiles?
13: Only a relatively small proportion of sex offenders are paedophiles. Really. I I mean, the other worrying thing about the offenders, Michael, is we've noticed in the the past few years a growing number of very young offenders in the 18 to 26, 27 age group. And what we do know about them is almost without exception, they began their pathway to offending at a very young age when they were around puberty, as young as 10, 11, by downloading images of child sexual abuse, becoming sexualized to those images and Mm -hmm. going on to act out those images with younger brothers and sisters or cousins or neighbouring mm. children. And uh, that raises a huge issue, for, again, for us as a society. I mean, what actually are our children watching? They, you know, we're way beyond the big old computer in the living room. Mm. What devices do they have? What are they downloading? And it is so easy to download images of child sexual abuse. And, you know, while it is a real tragedy for the the kids, the children, these young men abused. It is also a tragedy for them because forever afterwards, now in their lives, they will be sex offenders. And many of them are, you know, just starting out in apprenticeships, in mm. jobs, in college. And you know, we 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 have, for example, uh, many of them are entering adult relationships with with their partners. And we have to bring in young women and facilitate discussions about what is happening what has happened and the risk they may pose to their own children so it's an incredibly complex situation
3: Okay, well I suppose uh, you know there are people listening to us Maeve uh, who will say it's unbearable to think of uh, but whether you want to think about it or not it is unfortunately the reality of what people have to live with uh, and that highlights the importance of the work that you do to help people through their lives and to survive all of this Uh,
13: and and it's really important michael to hold out that hope i Mm. mean people who have gone through psychotherapy here will say that their lives have literally been transformed you know that for the first time in their lives they feel well they feel good about themselves they feel full of possibility about what life can offer them um, they're making very healthy choices mm-hmm. for themselves. So it, it is vital that survivors would have access. To good expert services like we can provide here
3: is 1in4. Okay and you get the support to provide it 12 months of uh, the year uh, instead of uh, 8 uh, because uh, of uh, a lack of funding as was the case last year. 1in4.ie is your website uh, Dublin number 6624070 is how people can contact one and 4 uh, We have to leave it there for now because we've run out of time and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Maeve Lewis, Executive Director of one and 4 brings our programme to its conclusion today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow Morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.